So if you got a Bible, grab it. We're going to be in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 7. If you don't have a Bible, there's some black ones in the seat back in front of you. You can grab one of those. And if you do, we're going to be on page 860. If you've got one of the Pew Bibles, you can also Google Matthew 7. Look it up on your phone. We just assume if you're looking at your phone uh, during the time of teaching that you're reading the Bible. So just don't let us know otherwise. We'll just assume, wow, they're really engaged, really engaged in the Word of God. So I do know the Seahawks play on Monday night, so I won't be worried about that. Matthew chapter 7. Now, if you've been uh, tracking with us, you realize we just finished a series of five lectures. We're calling them lectures because they were so long, and God's people said, amen. So they were so long, I get that, Don't, I, I know, okay, I know they were long, but uh, these are going to be like a core, we're going to point people back to these lectures in the future, because uh, the five C's, as we were calling those, that lecture series, are uh, the, a heartbeat, sort of a rhythm of our community of how we will experience growth into the likeness of Jesus. So um, as, as we do the five C's, which are connection, conversation, consideration, conviction, and confession, when we do those, we will grow, both individually and as a community. We'll grow in strength, we'll grow in impact, we'll grow in peace, all these fruits of the Spirit that um, the women's ministry is walking through. Like, we'll grow in that, but we've got to run the full cycle. And if we skip any of the five, we short-circuit the cycle. It either won't lead us back into more five Cs, right? Last week we talked about confession is when you experience that conviction of knowing something is true in your heart or more true than you ever thought. When you say that out loud, when you let your hands live that out in the world. So it's any external expression with your mouth or your body, the way you live your life, that's confession. It will inevitably slingshot you back into connection because it's the external and the cycle continues so if you fall short of, of the of the seas or if somewhere in the middle you don't you don't cling on and do the next step you're not going to get to the kind of finish line that God has prepared for you so that's why it's so important so the lectures are over so I'm gonna do something that's very hard for, I'm gonna promise today will be a bit shorter <laughs> and so somebody just tackle me if it's not. So I give, you know, full permission. But today we're going to start, we're going to go for the next five weeks. We're going to uh, see how the five C's play out in, in the pages of Scripture. Um, we're going to do some case studies, see some examples of this happening. For instance, the woman at the well. Um, we're going to look at some, even people in the Old Testament, how they've run through the five C's. This is not something that's isolated in Scripture. You see it happening over and over again. So we're going to highlight that. And today, we're not going to look at an individual story, but we're going to look at actually a teaching of Jesus that helps us understand the importance of the five C's. And it shows a way in which Jesus often invited people into the process through the way that he taught. So we're going to be looking at Jesus' words today. And then we're going to apply it in a particular way to a particular issue that we see in, that I see in the church today, a movement that's happening in the church that if, if we understand the five C's, we could apply that process and see the error or the waywardness of this particular movement. So um, that's what we're going to be doing. So to start, I want to read you the parable that's going to be at the center of our teaching today. You may have heard this parable. You may not. So I'm just going to read it. So it's Matthew chapter 7, starting in verse 24. Matthew 7, verse 24. These are the words... Of Jesus. I'll just, I'll just make a quick note here before we read it. 
This, these are the very last, this is the very last thing he says to close the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is the most famous speech in the history of the world. It's fair to say that. More people know about this speech than any other speech that's ever been uttered by human lips. Sermon on the Mount. So this is the most important moral teaching that's ever happened. It's shaped more things. It's impacted more things. And this is the very last thing. This is like his closer, okay? So you'd say this could be important. This might be important to understand what is he getting at with this parable. You ready? Jesus said this. Therefore, everyone who hears these words, pointing back to everything he said in the Sermon on the Mount, and I think you could say everything that he would say going forward, but particularly everything he's just said, these words of mine and acts on them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell, the rivers rose, and the winds blew and pounded that house. Yet, it didn't collapse because its foundation was on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and doesn't act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, the rivers rose, the winds blew, and pounded that house, and it collapsed. It collapsed with a great crash. If you're taking notes, I just want you to take, I'm going to give you 20 seconds to just think about what God is saying to you just as I read this parable of Jesus. did a series in the parables uh, six years ago, almost six years ago. We started it on the one-year anniversary of Sedaris. I know this because I went back and I listened to the first sermon in the parable series. Uh, we did that at the beginning of every parable. These are the words of Jesus. He wants you to hear them. What is he saying to you? So we'll do that this morning. So what, whatever you heard God saying to you, may or may not be important to what I have to say about these parables. But here's what I think. I think this parable is a reason why we need to run the five C's. Why we've been talking about these for now over six hours, <laughs> the five C's, okay? Like, Jesus has told us we need to be very careful how we build our houses, and by houses, he's talking our house of faith, our physical and moral lives as well, how we live in the world. Like, he's saying, be very careful how you build your life and on what foundation you're building your life and whose words you're building your life on. And this is what we've been saying in the five C's, Right? We need to run them over and over again to make sure the convictions that we feel are coming from God and not from some other source. It's exactly what Jesus is saying. To end the most important speech he ever gave, the most important speech the, ever, the world has ever heard. Jesus could be saying, run the five C's. <laughs> make sure you're building your life on my words 
and not on either words you think are mine or the words of someone else. Pretty audacious, these claims of Jesus. Pretty narrow, right? The only houses that don't get knocked down are the ones built on Jesus' words. So, this is why it is so important to run the five C's. Now, the other thing I want you to see here is what Jesus says about hearing, but not just hearing, doing, right? He says, the wise man is the man who built his house on a rock. And, and the building on the rock is the one who hears these words of mine and acts on them, right? So it's not just the one who hears them or even the one who hears them and believes them, but the one who hears them, believes them, and acts on them, right? Doesn't that sound like the five C's? You connect with Jesus, you connect with his words that we have recorded for us here in the Gospels. Um, you have a conversation with them. Make sure you're hearing it right. As we'll see in a second, context matters. The context of this will matter. So we're going to look at the, the few things Jesus says just before this. It matters. So we're having a conversation with Jesus now as we read his word. What are you trying to say to me here, God? And then we consider. And Jesus says, you hear him, but not just hear him, and not just believe him, which could, you could be even experiencing conviction of the words of Jesus. He's saying, now you have to act on them. Unless you do that, you're not actually building your life. You're not actually building your house. So again, the importance here of this last C, confession, which is you've got to let the convictions that come through hearing the word play themselves out in your life, both as an individual and us as a community. Otherwise, we're not actually building anything. So I think this parable has... Uh, <laughs> A lot to say to us about the five C's, which is why I decide, decided to, to preach on that this, this this week. Now, the other thing I want to point out is a par the, the idea of parable. You see, like, why does Jesus use um, almost this very esoteric, like, abstract idea? Like, why doesn't he just say it straight? Well, he says plenty of things straight in the Sermon on the Mount. But Jesus did this often. He often spoke in parables. And when he was asked this by his disciples, why do you speak in parables? He actually told them. He said, I speak in parables because some people are going to hear them and think I'm nuts. They're not going to get it at all. And they'll go about their way. Some people are going to hear them and it's going to come alive to them. And they're going to realize what God's saying through the parables. And I said, like, well, that seems... Why be so sneaky, Jesus? <laughs> you know, it's such like a weird thing for him to say. You can go read about this in Mark chapter 4. Like, why speak in this way? Again, I think part of what Jesus is telling us is that in the five C's, you're looking for insight and enlightenment that comes from God himself. So I'm going to speak to you in parables, Jesus says, in order maybe to even protect you from thinking that you get it when you don't actually get it. So I'm going to speak, they're not rhymes, but I'm going to speak in ways that, that only those who are actually considering, which is stepping out of the middle and letting God speak to you about what this parable means, only then will you have the kind of conviction 
that leads to confession, which leads to life, both for yourself and for others. So almost Jesus is saying through the use of parables, like there's a wrong way to come to knowledge, and I'm going to use the parables in order to protect you from coming to, to knowledge in the wrong way. It's like, that didn't seem fair. Jesus says, it is fair. <laughs> because look what he says just before this. In chapter 7, verse 7, he says, Ask, it will be given to you. Seek, you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receive. The one who seeks, finds. And the one who knocks, the door will be opened. So the point of, of this, this is important. Jesus didn't say like, I just got this secret group of people that I, that I am going to keep the true knowledge away from. He's saying, but you got to come to the knowledge of God humbly and realize that you can't come to full knowledge without God helping you. He said, I don't want you to come to knowledge without me. I don't want you to be the center of your moral, intellectual um, world. I want to be the center of it. I'm going to use the parables to help get there. But if you seek, if you truly ask, God, show me what this parable means. You humbly come to it. He says, the door will be opened. I'll send you the Spirit. I'm not going to keep that from anybody that truly wants that. But it is going to keep the people away who want to try to do the Jesus thing without Jesus. So again, as we run this five C's, just remember, you can't do it without God interjecting himself into the process. And if you find yourself doing it without God, be very weary of the conclusions you come to. That's part of what this parable is, is teaching us. So, Jesus used the parables. So how does this parable become the ultimate reminder of what Jesus wants us to do with his life? So, um, or sorry, with our life. So now I want to look at the context, okay, of where this parable comes. I already said it came at the end of the long sermon, but the things Jesus says right before it, tucked in between where he says, ask and you will find, and the parable of building on the rock or the sand, let's see what Jesus has to say, okay? So let's go now to verse 13. So this is right after the section where Jesus talks about anybody who asks, the Father will answer. 7.13 says this. Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the road broad that leads to destruction. Does that sound like anything Jesus just said in the par- or is going to say in the parable? Destruction. The house will come down with a great crash. And there are many who go through it. Now, it's important to point out, we don't know how many. He does not, Jesus is not being specific here. There's no sort of formula, like one-third will find the narrow gate, two-thirds, we don't know. He just says, there's a narrow gate, and there's a broad or a wide gate with a broad road leading to it, and many will go through that gate. How narrow is the gate and difficult the road that leads to life, and few find it. Verse 15. Here's a so that. So, be on your guard. Against what? False prophets 
who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravaging wolves. You'll recognize them by their fruit. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? In the same way, every good tree produces good fruit, but a bad tree produces bad fruit. A good tree can't produce bad fruit, neither can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that doesn't produce good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So you'll recognize them by their fruit. Okay, so Jesus is doing something pretty intense here. The first intense thing he's saying, there's only two ways, right? He's saying there's a narrow gate and there's a wide gate. There's no like semi-narrow gate, semi-wide. It's like there's two ways. And then he's saying there's a group of people that will come along and they'll try to get people to go through the broad gate. He says, there's people in the world who are false teachers. They're teaching false things about who God is. But he doesn't say it'll be obvious. He says it'll be really hard to know the difference. He says they come and they look like sheep, which is, they're, they're really nice. They say really nice things. They look, they, they're probably friendlier than many true teachers that you know. They come, they look like sheep. But inwardly, which is the things you can't see, their motivations are corrupt. They're ravaging wolves. They're coming to feed upon people. Whether they know it or not. Whether they understand their motivations or not. They're not there to glorify Jesus and as we'll see, to help people build their life on his words. They want you to build your life on their words. And they might even think they're doing you a favor. They look like sheep. You can't tell the difference. Just remember that. This is the context in which Jesus says these words about building your life. Then he goes on to say, just when you thought that was intense, verse 21. He says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. On that day, he's speaking here of the judgment day. Remember we talked about in the conviction series, the Spirit of God convicts them, right, of righteousness, truth, and of judgment, meaning the judgment day, that one day we'll have to give an account to God of how we lived our lives, what we built our life on, what we did with our life. So he's saying on that day, many will say to me, so one, just think how crazy it is, Jesus is saying, I'll be there on that day, right? So if you're wondering, was Jesus just an ordinary guy who thought he was an ordinary guy teaching some truth? He thinks he'll be there on that day judging you. you just imagine thinking that's sort of a nice guy. No, Jesus thinks he's God. It's, it's clear here, he thinks he's God. And he says, I'll be there judging you on that day. And on that day, you'll say to me, Lord, Lord, which is the ultimate address of reverence. That's what we call it. Caesar is Lord, right? So that's a big thing to say, Lord, Lord, to Jesus. They'll say that on that day, and, and, and then th those people will say, didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we drive out demons in your name? Didn't we do miracles in your name? And the implication here is, yes, you did. And look what Jesus says. Then I will say to you, or I will announce to you, 
or to them, quote, I never knew you. Depart from me, you lawbreakers. What? These are people who preach the word of God. These are people who, in some power, cast out spiritual forces of darkness. These are some people who perform signs and wonders. And Jesus says to them, I never knew you. Whoa. This is intense. This is the context with which Jesus then says, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell, the rivers rose, the wind blew, pounded the house, yet it didn't collapse because its foundations were on the rock. Just to say, those who truly knew me, who had conviction from me, who confessed and built their life on those convictions that I brought to their heart through my word, they won't experience destruction. Those who don't do that, same storm, same rain, same wind, and they come down with a great crash. So this parable is not soft or light or What do they call it? What's <laughs> DJ, you always use this word. Campy? What is it? No. Um, anyhow. It's DJ in the room. All right. Campsy. What is the word I'm looking for? I'm losing it. Anyhow. It's, it's, it's not fun, is what I'm trying to say. It's not quaint. It's not, oh, fun little story here, Jesus. He's, he's really talking about big ideas. He's talking about Life and death, eternally, he's talking about your life now. Both are in view here. He's saying, build your house in one particular way, and you'll experience life. Build your house in another way, in another place, on different foundation, and you won't experience life. Both now and forevermore. So this is intense. And that's okay. <laughs> Because all who seek will find. Those who knock, the door will be opened. Jesus isn't saying, this is narrow, and no one can find it. He's saying, this is narrow. You're going to have to look a little bit harder. The broad gate, easy to find. The path, wide, lots of on-ramps. He's not saying you can't get in if you find the narrow gate. He's just saying you've got to look a little bit harder. You've got to work at it. Just don't do the obvious. Do the actual. Ryan and I have written on our board in our office. There's obvious truth, and then there's actual truth. Right? Some of us think, oh, it's so obvious, the truth. A little bit more searching, and you find out what's actually true. We want to be people who proclaim what's actually true, not what's obviously true. Because obvious, what we find is not always actual. So you've got to work. The, the narrow gate, it's not easy to find. It's not obvious. That's where life is found. And Jesus is, of course, talking about himself. He makes it very clear. There's two ways. The way of Jesus and every other way. These are Jesus' words. Take it up with him. So what is he saying? He's saying, come to me. 
Learn my words. Learn my way. Trust me. And you won't regret it. Now, I told you I wanted to talk about a movement, a way, that's challenging this narrow way of through Jesus. Um, some of you may know this, the term I'm going to give this movement, some of you may not. If you, if you haven't, you'll, you'll hear it at some point. Especially in a city like Seattle, especially because we're a younger church, it's just sort of making its way through. It's just sort of, it's a broad way, making its way through the church and even those who are not a part of the church. It's called the deconstruction movement. Have you heard of this? You hear people say things like, um, you know, maybe I grew up in the church and, and I've just come to realize I've got to deconstruct my faith. I've got to take it down uh, brick by brick, pillar by pillar, um, in order to, to be able to find what's true. Now, what I want to say is that there's, that's not completely untrue because there is, if you grew up in the church in particular, there is sort of some examination you need to do of your house. You need to ask, is my house of faith based on the words of Jesus? Is it true? And depending on what your background is, you, you might have built a house that isn't based on the words of Jesus. So in that sense, you, do, you might need to deconstruct certain parts of your faith house. So, so it's not all bad. Like, we're actually telling you to do this with the five C's. We're saying anything that you believe to be true, if it's, remember we talked about secondhand conviction, if you got that from somewhere else, whether that's from a parent or from a pastor or from a youth worker, if you got it from somewhere else, it's important to walk around your house and check the wood. Is the wood rotting? Is it good wood? Is the wood based on Jesus? But I wouldn't call that deconstruction. I would, I would call that reinforcement. Like you may need to reinforce your house. Meaning like you may have some truth that's based on secondhand conviction that after some investigation you realize is not really based on Jesus at all. So it's like, I'm gonna t- I need to take down this wood. And sometimes it's a big beam that the whole house is sitting on. Here's what I encourage you to do. Don't just take that beam out or the whole thing crashes down. Put a better beam up, the beam of Christ. And then you take the other beam down. And you go out and you burn it in the wood pile. Nothing wrong with that. But that's not what this movement is encouraging. This movement is encouraging you to take the whole thing down and put it back together. The problem is, if you've ever built an Ikea uh, piece of furniture, most people throw, have thrown out the instructions, so, a booklet. So you build, you know, you built it, looks good, it's working. You realize, I got to move, it doesn't fit out my door, I'm going to take it apart. Then you get to your new place and you're like, oh my gosh, I can't put it back together. The deconstruction movement throws this book out for the most part. So they don't know how to put it back together. So, typically what happens is people deconstruct and they never reconstruct. Now, there are always exceptions to the rules. There are people who have deconstructed and then reconstructed. Praise be to God. And it's usually because they realized where the instruction manual went to put it back together. Unfortunately, I've seen a lot more cases of people deconstructing and ending up just burning the wood, all of it, and never coming back to it again. Now, I still pray to God that they'll come back. If you know people, there's people in our community who have deconstructed and left our church. I pray that they come back. They're always welcome back. Here's where we look through the instruction manual, how to put it back together. 
So it's not to say they're forever lost. It's just to say if they continue to follow the prophets, books, teachings, podcasts of the deconstructionists, they're never going to put it back together because that's not the point of the movement. The point of the movement is to deconstruct. They're not building anything. That's just the reality of it. To me, the deconstruction movement is exactly the kind of people Jesus is talking about right before he tells this parable. Guard yourself, he says, against false teachers. Again, they look like sheep. They even call themselves Christians. They'll even talk about this book a little bit, but they'll cut so much out of it that nothing can be put back together again. Jesus is the one that said this. Be on your guard. I'm just reading you what he said, and I'm applying it to a particular movement of our day. And I see it so much. I hear story after story. The reason I decided to preach on this week, a friend of mine just used it casually in conversation like it was no big thing. Oh, most of my friends, they're deconstructing. And I said, Are we, not, we need to pray now. This is not going to end well for them. This is literally like going to the deconstruction movements like this. I'm going I'm to adjust Jesus' metaphor slightly. Um, Jesus is not particularly talking about a beach scene, but for some reason when I read it, I think of a beach scene. So I'm going to talk to you about this uh, Jesus parable like a beach scene. I mean, Jesus is talking about, I mean, both of these could be on the beach, and, and he's talking about digging deep into the sand to make sure that you're driving the pylons into the, the real rock. But I'm going to just, for ease from my mind, say, like, there's a beach, and then just beyond the beach, there's, like, some rock, <laughs> okay? It's like deconstructionists will go up to the rocks because they only, they only write their books, their po- they send their podcasts only to people who have been living on the rocks, And they say, hey, you shouldn't be living up here. For whatever reason, they've got it wrong. Just take it apart and come down and rebuild it down on the sand with us. Here on the beach. And this is usually how it sounds. That's where the people are. The people are on the beach. The beach is fun. There's people from every background on the beach. Why are you living up here on the rocks? Forgetting, of course, what Jesus said, that the church is like a city on a hill so that it can give light to those who are lost, where? At sea, and find dry land. Come on down to the beach. This is where the fun is. This is where it's happening. Take apart your house. Bring the wood down. We may put it back together. We may use it for bonfires. If you've ever been to a bonfire on the beach, super fun, right? And whole churches will do that. This is where the people are, on the beach. So we gotta bring the gospel to them. Ryan and I were talking about this week. We spend 16 hours a day on the beach. It's fine to stay on the beach, but you know what? We go back and we sleep in our house on the rocks. It's the rock. It's secure. It's where the words of Jesus... It doesn't mean you don't interact with the people on the beach. It means you don't build your house there. And I want you to take it apart, bring it down, and rebuild it on the beach. It's like the deconstruction of movement is like saying this. Deassemble your house on the rock, move it down here to the beach... And build it right next to us. Which is what? They're saying, forget everything that you've been taught. Forget everything about the interpretation that you you were told is true. We've got the right interpretation. We know how to read this book. We've got it. And we're cool. And we're nice. It's all about denigrating 
the neighborhood on the rock, to promote the neighborhood on the beach. Jesus said there's two ways. We shouldn't be surprised by this. The deconstruction movement is not new. It happens every century or so within the church. Well, we don't really need to take Jesus' words that seriously. You know, he probably was, you know, he was sort of a slave to his time. He had to kind of say those things. We've got new enlightenment. We've got special knowledge. We've got, get off the rocks. Those people are the worst. Come down. This is where the people are. The reinforcement movement, which is what we want to be about at Sedaris, is about saying, you've got a good base, you're in the right place, you're in the right neighborhood, but there seems to be some wood that we need to replace. There's some rotten parts of the way you think, and we're going to help you find the good wood, (laughs) the wood that lasts forever. That's what we want to be about, the reinforcement movement. And we see ourselves as a church in this business. Again, we're not scared of the beach. We're not scared of these arguments. We just don't want people to believe blindly the interpretation of this particular movement because it's false. That doesn't mean there's not rotten wood that needs to be replaced. That's the five C's. You see the five C's? We're going to take a look. We're going to expect the house. We're going to make sure this is built on the words of Jesus. For a lot of us, our faith will grow, it'll change, but we don't need to raise the whole thing and restart fresh in a different place. So, I can tell I'm passionate about this. Um, I've cried a lot of tears over people who have been swept into it. I've pleaded with them not to move out of the neighborhood, stay on the rock. And the pull is just, it's too, it's too strong. And I pray for them that, that perhaps this is just a momentary new conviction and that they'll see the city on the hill, on the rock, and they'll return. So you can join me in praying. But it's real. So I want to tell you about um, four people that I think can be tempted. Now, you may be in one of these four categories, or you may know somebody. So this might not be this whole deconstructionist thing, like, that's not my problem. It is your problem. It's your job to friends that seem to be following this new teaching to help them see its error. And moreover, this parable is for all of us because we all struggle to actually hear the words of Jesus and do them. So this is for all of you, but I want to talk about four different types of people because that might help you. If this isn't you, it might help you see this in a friend. Person number one. This is a person living on the rock, in the neighborhood of rock, and they're still living in their parents' house. Then they come, they hear these deconstructionists talk about, you don't have to believe that anymore. It's not really essential. You don't don't need to believe about the two ways (laughs) that Jesus makes very clear. All all roads lead to heaven. These sorts of things you'll hear. And the problem is, it's tempting to them. They're living, they're living on a rock, but they're not living in their own house, meaning they never actually built their own house of faith. They've just been living in their parents' house. That was me for many years of my adult life. 
So I had to go back and reconsider and run the five C's to say, do I really believe these things? And eventually I built my own house in the same neighborhood, I think with some elevated understandings from even my parents, but I had to build my own house. So that's person number one. At some point in your life, you got to move out of your parents' house of faith and build your own house of faith. And if you haven't done that, you could be swept into this deconstruction movement to say, hey, don't build next to your parents. You don't want them coming over all the time. <laughs> you don't want them visiting your church. <laughs> so, so come on down here. we got a church on the beach. They'll never come down here. <laughs> and it's actually true. They won't ever come down there probably, hopefully. That's person number one. Person number two, um, they're living in their pastor's house on the rock. So they go to a church that's built on the word of God, that preaches the word of God, and they love the conviction of their pastor, and they say, yeah! And then at some point, it's challenged. Did they actually believe that? And what you realize is that they've just been running on the fumes of their hyper-convicted pastor. <laughs> you think that could happen here at Sedaris? Man, I'm convicted. Don't, don't run on my fumes. You've got to find conviction of your own, build your own house, Stop living in your pastor's house. Because, hey, God forbid your pastor's house comes falling down. Then what happens to you? You get crushed in the rubble, and you suffocate, and your faith dies. It's great to have a pastor with conviction, a pastor who teaches and preaches the word of God, but they are not infallible. They are not the rock. Their house could come down. So make sure you build your own house. It could be next door. <laughs> Just... Make sure you're not living in his house. Story after story of people who've been living in their pastor's house, and when their pastor's house comes to the ground, their faith does too. Person number three. Living in your own house on the rock and then choosing to tear it down. This is a real thing that happens too. You've actually built your house on the word of Jesus You've trusted him, you've moved out of the center, you've considered what's true and real and good, you've been convicted that Jesus is who he said he was, that the things he said are trustworthy and true, that he's a man of his word, all of these things. You've built a house on the rock, and then the, sheep, or the wolves come in sheep's clothing, and you are convinced that you, that you shouldn't have built your house on the rock, that you shouldn't have trusted Jesus at his word, that there's some type of special knowledge that these other teachers have that you never had and so you're convicted i'm going to tear it down i'm going to deconstruct it and i'm going to rebuild it on the sand so that does happen that's a that's a real thing that happens you might know somebody like that you you might be in that boat you might be in the process of deconstructing i would just tell you look twice look at the fruit of the others take a look take just take a look Take, take, take a close look. Have you taken a close look? Or do you just hear them talking on the podcast? Do you just read their books? What is their life? Who are they serving? Are they giving their life away so that others might find life in Christ? Or do they just say interesting things, thoughtful things, winsome things? Are they funny? Are they funnier than your boring pastor? <laughs> just take a close look, Jesus says. So that might be you. Person three, you might know somebody. Person three. They've really actually built a rock, and now they're, they're in the process of tearing it down so they can build it on the sand. And um, the third kind of person. Uh, they own a home on the rock. They didn't tear it down yet. 
They're just taking a vacation on the beach. They're living in a friend's basement who's got a house on the beach. You know anybody like this? Like, they haven't, they haven't given up on it. Let's just see what the market does. <laughs> okay, so we kept the house, and I'm going to go rent for a while or couch surf on my friend's uh, couch that's living on the sand. Ooh, boy, that's pretty fun for a while, isn't it? Parties on the beach, bonfires on the beach. Love, peace, inclusion for all. None, none, none of this. There's only two gates kind of nonsense. That's nice on the beach. But you still own the house on the hill. When the fun runs out, when the wood from all the deconstruction, when that bonfire goes out and there's no more heat on the beach and, and, and the wind from the ocean blows, there's not a lot of houses built down there. Just know, you can come back. That's a good thing that you didn't sell your house, <laughs> that you didn't construct the whole thing, that you're just visiting. If you know a friend like that, if you're like that, when, the time, when you realize it, just move back in. If there's squatters in your house, help them build their own house. <laughs> okay, come back. Jesus doesn't give up on you. The church doesn't give up on you. Don't give up on yourself. It's normal, it's okay to wonder if you've got it wrong. When you realize you didn't have it wrong, and there's real life on the rock, come back to the rock. Jesus is waiting. That's why we have the great parable of the prodigal son, because the prodigal father is God waiting. The prodigal father didn't sell the house. <laughs> He kept it right where it was so that the son knew where to go when he realized life on the road was bankrupt. Life on the beach was bankrupt. So he came back because his father kept the house. The house is well furnished. <laughs> it's got heat. Come on back. Jesus tells the great parable of the prodigal son to remind you, you can come back. So maybe you resonate with one of these four. Maybe that's your story. Share that story in cohort. Confess that story. Don't be ashamed of that story. That story is the glory of God, that he didn't, he didn't knock your house down. He paid the utility bill while you were gone to keep it going. He hired some people to keep it clean so that when you came back, we could throw a party rather than you have to go and, and, and sit in the rain, sit in the cold when you get back. When you get back, it's ready to go. The fire is on. God is waiting. The church is waiting. So Jesus says, Everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them, so it's both about hearing and doing, they're like someone who builds their house on the rock. And the rock lasts forever. Those who build their house on the sand, the shifting, the moving, the unstable, that you never quite know what's true and what's not true, that's a fool. And their house, eventually, the storms of life will come. The winds will blow. Same storm. This is important in the parable. Same storm. And one house gets truly deconstructed, crashes to the ground, and there's a spectacle. And we live in a time where we celebrate that spectacle, right? You want to go see somebody with a lot of clicks on their video? There's probably going to be more clicks on a video of somebody who's deconstructed their faith 
than on somebody who's preaching the word of God. Why is that? Why is that? Could anybody tell us why that is? Oh, wait, Jesus told us the way is broad, the, road, the, the, the gate is wide <laughs> that leads to destruction. People love living on that road. It's fun to watch people who had great faith fall. What's popular? People crashing to the ground. It's like when the kingdom came down. If you lived here long enough like I did, before, before Lumen Field, which then was, century, was Quest Field, then Century, anyhow, it's hard to remember all the names of the football stadium. There used to be a giant concrete dome. And at one point they imploded the dome. And it was a spectacle. And it was fun to watch. You could Google that. If you want to watch a deconstruction, Google that. <laughs> There's your spectacle. A lot of concrete hitting the ground of Seattle, smoke in the air. It's like Mount St. Helens all over again. It's fun to watch. And people love watching faith fall apart. The people of God don't. The people of God weep and they mourn when they hear that great crash. And the beautiful news of the gospel, just to reiterate this, whether you're person one, person two, person three, person four, whether your friend is one, two, three, or four, and their faith does crash to the ground, and it's a loud crash, and maybe they're even proud of it, and the water rises, and at some point they realize they're being swept out to sea, and they begin to realize they're drowning. We have a Savior who says, I go in after him. That's what, we, that's what I sing every week, you know. I can't do it. I can't swim good enough. But Jesus can. And he does. And he takes people out of the wreckage of their life and their faith that they brought upon themselves because they built their house on the sand. And he goes into the water and he pulls them out. And, and there's just story after story of that. That's why we worship Jesus. That's why we build our life on him. He can be trusted. He can do things that we cannot do. And ultimately, and this is ultimately when I reconsidered, when I asked, am I living in my parents' house or, or do I really believe this? I found Jesus to be true because he says, I can even bring him back from the dead because I came back from the dead. And man, my, my faith was almost shipwrecked. I was ready to tear it down because many of you know my sister was killed in an accident. And I said, I, I don't want to build my life on a God like that. And he came down in his grace. He said, no, I'm going to bring her back. And you're going to spend life with her. And he made that conviction so true in my heart. Even though I believed it on secondhand conviction, he made that divine hand conviction so that I knew that he is true, that he is rock, and I doubled down on him, and I put my roots deeper, my pillars, I drove it deeper into his word, as Jesus says, these words of mine, and he's brought life, new life, fresh life, multiplied life, because I chose to build my life on him.